Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is, of course, a Sunday. It is the 13th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been since we last talked? I've been great, Gary. I'm loving the weather. You're not slowly melting in a pool of your own sweat? No, it's fantastic. I mean, it's not that hot. And the humidity is down way, way. So it's bone dry and it's fantastic. The beaches are beautiful. Sadly, well, the local merchants are glad of their money, but it means it's harder to park close to the sea for those of us who want to go for a swim. But other than that, it's fantastic. And it will all be over within a matter of days. And I can promise you, Gary, winter will be long. I hope you're right, Michael. I recently very foolishly signed up to a uh, hike which will run anywhere from 7 to 11 days. And I've been training for it in this weather because I don't have enough time to train properly, Michael. So I'm going to need to run myself into the ground. And the heat is not helping. Well, it's making it easier to run myself into the ground anyway, just not easier to uh, hike. Well, there's always a possibility that you'll cripple yourself and thus have a very good excuse for not going on a seven-day hike. Uh, There have been multiple days since I started training for this a couple of weeks ago where I have got out of a chair and had to do this sort of... Have you ever seen a a newborn foal, Michael? Yes. I've had to do that, legitimately, because the muscles in my leg just, just don't want to. You know, Gary, while you are the very model of an athletic man, I can imagine a few creatures on this God's earth that look less like a newborn foal than you do. It's the constant scrowl of cynicism. You don't see that in newborns. I once cycled around the Ring of Kerry, and I believe your plan is to go around the Ring of Beira. And my suspicion is that you will have exactly the same experience I had, which is rain 20 hours a day, nonstop for seven days. I mean, that's probably true. We will get to the news shortly, but on as we as this has come up organically, you know, people tell you, Michael, that hiking and uh, camping are really cheap hobbies. They are not. I have just I'm just pouring my wealth into like ultralight tents. Do you know how much an ultralight tent costs, Michael? 200 quid? I would say three to 500 and you're more on the upper than the lower end. You'll have it then for all of the other lovely hiking opportunities that you'll have in the future. You see, that's what I'm telling myself, Michael, as I spend like two grand on gear. But I also suspect deep in my mind, there's a hope that I never use it again. But then I have two grand of hiking gear. Yeah. And there's also the possibility you get a really nice hotel on the Albanian coast for a week for that kind of money. You're not including your pain and suffering in the price of that, are you? And also, you're, I'm sure that you will have some pleasure out of this. But you know what, Gary? There's some pleasure about sleeping in a hotel with Egyptian cotton sheets and going down to a nice breakfast in the morning and having a bar where you can sit at a pool and drink Mai Tais all day. You spent all of that effort telling me that, that and making sure that I don't end up reviewing restaurant Patrick Gabbard on the show because no one wants that. And then you let me talk about hiking gear. I'm not sure even you know what you want anymore. Yeah, yeah, I have never known what I want. All I know that Aristotle has it somewhere, but if I could only find it, I'd know it. Anyway, on to the news. So we want to touch on Salman Rushdie and the uh, the stabbing for motives unknown, Michael. As people are saying, wouldn't want to preempt why anyone would stab Salman Rushdie. It, it is a bit of a mystery. And the New York, New York Times did say very clearly, motives are still very unclear. You know, it may have been a disgruntled reader. Yes, yes. And uh, certainly not the person that people are claiming it is whose social media is full of photos of the Ayatollah. You know, you can be a fan of the Ayatollah and a discriminating and discerning reader of English high lit. When I say that out loud, I'm not actually sure that that statement is true, that you can actually be both of those things. But yeah, we'll say you can.
But to start with, I wanted to uh, to open with a bit of a mea cupola, Michael. On this show, we have said many, many, many unkind things about Fintan O'Toole, about his capabilities, about his intellect, about his writing style, which I know coming from me is immensely rich because I write like I'm putting together a technical document. This time, Fintan O'Toole has written an article that I actually agree with. I don't know, Gary, I, this worries me. This worries me greatly. I think we may be approaching the end times. What Finton has wrote about is, is something that we have been talking about for a while. It's um, energy prices. Finton O'Toole has an article called Irish society is about to experience levels of energy poverty unknown in modern times. As energy poverty hits record levels, the government is sleepwalking into a social disaster. Now, I think it's always difficult to say whether or not these sort of predictions are right. Because if you remember before last winter, Michael, we were talking about it and we were saying all signs indicate this is going to go badly unless we get lucky and get a mild winter. And sometimes you get lucky. The question is, how often can you get lucky? So this this winter is also shaping up to be bad. I think during the week there were three days in which the energy system had a, an amber alert on it, which is, an amber alert is basically saying there's no risk of blackouts at the minute, but we are running, you know, we're starting to run to capacity. So if we spike, it's, we are in danger if there's a spike, basically, of a blackout. Yeah, we, when we were talking about this uh, last year, wait, coming up to the winter, it had, we were looking at multiples, uh, yellow warnings, and it, it very much looked like that if we if we hit an unfortunate period where you had potentially say very cold weather but as can sometimes happen you can get a a period where you go you get a period of deep cold maybe a high uh, a polar high but you don't get a lot of wind therefore we don't have the the addition from the wind sector that we could have been in very very serious trouble as it turned out it didn't happen but yeah it's a question we as the uh, somebody said in a very different context uh they have we have to get it right all the time they the weather only has to get it right once and we run out of electricity apparently there was an issue michael that there wasn't a lot of wind almost like as you know some people may have said consistently for a long period of time michael replacing reliable baseload energy production with a highly variable energy source is a bad idea and the more you do it the worse of an idea it becomes if anybody has the fun experience of ever following a, a former uh, green party member dan Butler's uh, twitter feed it's always full of good nuggety stuff this week he was saying look if we had significantly invested in large scale with i'm paraphrasing here by the way large scale uh, solar generation then wouldn't it be fantastic? Yeah, because you get five or six days of sunshine every year, in a year. Then that's why we should have had, we should have, we should spend a few billion on putting in a solar, uh, a solar plant across the country. That makes such fantastic sense because yeah, that would solve all our problems. Like it solved, Gary, the Germans' problems. The reason why the Germans don't have any energy problems at the moment is because they've spent more than half a trillion dollars subsidizing renewable energy and therefore they don't have any problems with losing russian gas so they don't have any problems with the fact that they've closed down their nuclear power stations and certainly gary they're not increasingly using their their ignite and brown coal mines to fire up the coal power stations that's not happening because they they didn't they did what we didn't do they invested massively in this uh, renewable energy system to underpin their uh, energy production and therefore they're sitting pretty right now i mean until like the very last part there I was worried that there wasn't enough sarcasm in your voice 
and people might think you were being serious, but you 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 hit it in the end, Michael. It's not enough juice out, yeah. So one of the things that Finton talks about, which I have seen a couple of newspaper pieces on, but not ones that have really gone into it. Finton is talking about um, why electricity and gas bills are going to go up, and that Electric Ireland has said they're going to go up, that we're just going to start seeing these across it. And then he goes on to some of what we've seen in Europe, which has been, I mean, if you look at the French, who are, which is what Finton focuses on particularly, you've seen uh, price caps being put in place. And then he quotes from Leo, Michael, you know, that, that great free marketeer. And he says that Leo has said that price caps do not work because when you introduce price caps, you have to keep increasing them and that doesn't work for people. So here's here's the thing about this about this whole situation. By all accounts, prices are going to go up. They're going to go up so much that governments have to find some way to deal with it. And you have two choices there. You can either deal with it at the uh, the power company side of things, or you can deal with it at the consumer side of things. Which is to say, you can either let it go on to the consumer and deal with it individually, or you can basically subsidise the power companies, which will cost billions. Which then, of course, Michael, people will pay back through tax. So, you know, it's not like you actually don't hit the people with it. It's just less immediate. Well, I suppose what some people might say is that you're not, you're not going to hit the power companies, but rather what you're going to do is limit their capacity to price gouge and profiteer. And we're using the word profiteer because they are using the, a, a moment of war in order to extract uh, excessively high profits. And therefore, what you're actually, all you're going to do really is reduce their profits rather than force them to sell below cost. Actually, I mean, on a macro level, what has happened to European energy prices is very reminiscent of what happens to energy markets when you replace sustainable and reliable baseload with renewables. You get volatility. Yes, huge volatility. If we saw these sort of issues, but let's say Europe had gone a different direction, if it still had its fossil fuels, if it had invested heavily in nuclear, much like France has, those are more resilient systems. Also, if, if it had diversified its source of certain of those fossil fuels rather than becoming excessively reliant in some cases on one supplier. Yes, a supplier who um, you have historically not had the best relationship with. Many people were telling you that perhaps this was not something you wanted to do, that perhaps there were not just energy concerns, but security concerns because the person you were making yourself reliant on had, Michael, shall we say, a bit of a penchant for... Uh, the use of energy as a weapon or as a negotiating tactic. Yeah, you're, when you're dealing with a, a pissed off and resentful imperial power, which was perfectly willing to use its uh, control of your energy supply in order to leverage that into political uh, acquiescence when it decides to go on some kind of an old imperial campaign. I think the important thing here to note, Michael, is it's not the war. The war is having an impact. What is actually scuttling everyone is the way that government policies have changed the form of electrical production, storage and distribution in Europe over the last 20 years. If we'd gone in other directions, we would be better placed to take external shocks like this. But we're not. We've put ourselves in a place where there is an immense amount of fragility and now we are reaping the rewards of it. This is not a war. This is the natural and expected consequence of a series of public policy steps that became popular across nearly all of Europe at the same time. And then, Michael, like, here's one, one, inst- one immediate sense. So obviously we have the, the fracked gas. I mean, it's illegal, obviously, to, uh, sorry, it's illegal to build 
any sort of fracking facility on Irish soil. But while it's not illegal, it is disallowed to import any of the uh, any fracked gas. So even if America decides to start selling off its stockpile, which they've done before, or to uh, reopen some of the um, closed fracking uh, locations and sell off some of its stockpile, we will be precluded from making any use of that, even if it would make people's lives better, due simply to the fact that the government has decided that it will not allow it to be imported. There's a weird mishmash here, I suspect. I think of naivety, moralism, excessive optimism, maybe. I, let, let put it this way. And what do you think of it? I think that I have, lest anybody mistake me, I'm not against the idea of renewable energy. I'm not against the idea that we should, we, people, science, people who know how to do these things, should be out there doing their level best to work out how we can use the wind or the tide or the sun or anything that's available to us in order to generate electricity and to do so in a way which is reasonable and feasible and carbon free and all of that. I think that's super great. But do you do you have the feeling, Gary, that when the governments in Europe and particularly I say our own, embarked quite some time ago now on this idea of transitioning your our economy. And as you've been saying uh, again and again, Gary, over the years, our economy is built on energy. That is the thing which defined the Western economy since the Industrial Revolution. Cheap energy, the generation of cheap energy and also fungible, movable energy. But that's without that, nothing else happens. Our economy, our way of life is built on that. And as they decide to move our, our energy uh, generation, consumption supply, from the traditional, which has not historically happened before, by the way, that we don't, it isn't that you transition from one thing to another, rather you expand your energy consumption and you, you use what you used before, but then you use something else and then you add something else and something else. And so you get more and more because we use energy more and more and more all the time. It's not that we, we historically have been in a position to say, well, we're not going to use hydropower anymore. We keep using hydropower. We keep using water mills. We keep using races, but we add on to that coal and then we use oil, then we use natural gas. There was a kind, I think, perhaps a naive expectation that by the time we got to the crunch point, we would have solved the problem, that science would have got there. But having spent literally trillions on the research, on tax benefits, on on subsidized research for in, in universities and in energy companies, we would have solved the problem. That was going to be the thing. We would have solved the problem. And we, we've now reached the point where we've hit the... We've hit the crisis and we haven't solved the problem. We may be near solving the problem. We may be, we have, we may have part of the solutions, but we don't have it. And we have found ourselves utterly unprepared. And in Ireland, Gary, we're probably more unprepared than anywhere else in Europe. I don't know, did you see the report from the Irish Academy of Engineering, which came out, I think it was last week, and they said that Ireland has failed to prepare for current scenario and is probably the worst prepared country in Europe and for a variety of reasons. You're talking about, say, gas, for example. We have right now, Gary, no gas storage facilities in this country, right? We are the country at the very end of the European network and we have no gas storage. Germany, it says here, that we, we, it, the report said, has 100 days of gas storage and during the summer is busily filling its gas storage to even out the heavy demand in the winter. Austria has a year, a full year of gas storage. 
Now, one of the interesting things here is we could have chosen to use the Kinsale gas field, which is depleted, and we could have used that to store gas. Could have pumped gas into that during the summer like other countries. Could have done that, but we have chosen not to. In fact, we have dismantled the infrastructure so we don't have that option, right? Now, you mentioned fracking, right? We are the only coastal country in Europe that does not have a liquefied natural gas importation importation infrastructure. I think we have referred in the past right, to the fact that the United States, even though it withdrew from the Paris Accord, was the, pretty well the only country in the, the Paris Accord which met the targets, which was because they had gone heavily into fracking, they had produced lots and lots of natural gas, and because of that use of natural gas, they've been able to meet their, their emission reductions. We, on the other hand, have said we will not use American natural gas because it may, it may be fracked, Gary. We, I think, are willing to use gas from Saudi Arabia which we regard apparently as taint-free, blood-free, human rights compliant, but we're not willing to use fracked gas because that would be morally wrong. I think there's a, there's a point to make here. So fracking is obviously illegal onshore, but when you look at the importation of liquid natural gas, and you're right, Michael, we have we have nothing there. Here's a um, here's a quote from the government, Michael, that I thought you might like about fracked gas. Following detailed examination by the Office of the Attorney General, it is not proved possible to provide a legal basis for Ireland to legislate domestically for a ban on the import of fracked gas. Oh, really? What they then say is that due to that, they are going to support a moratorium on the development of uh, the sort of infrastructure, Michael, that liquid natural gas would require to get to Ireland. So, in other words, now that they've decided that they couldn't actually make it illegal, although they did try, and there was a directive on that basis, but instead of saying we're going to make it, we're going to make it useless anyway, because we're not going to allow them to build the infrastructure that we could have in order to get natural gas into, the, and which we could do it. But I mean, there is a proposal. I don't need to see that. There was a proposal by one energy company said we could we could actually bring LNG over from the states and ships, put it into floating deliquefaction or gasification. I actually think that's the word they use: gasification, floating uh, platforms, and then put it into Kinsale and then drive it through that into the system and into the natural gas system. So it, we could do it, but we're not going to allow people to develop that kind of infrastructure since we can't actually make the importation illegal. That's just fantastic. A moratorium on the development of LNG import terminals pending the completion of a review of security of supply. Now, the energy companies have been complaining, Michael, that um, Minister Ryan, Eamon Ryan, of course, the leader of the Green Party, his department, they've been putting in, you know, the necessary paperwork that they've always had to put in. And they're just not getting responses back. Almost like someone, Michael, is trying to slow walk anything to do with certain energy companies. In which case you would expect that the review of the security of supply and the follow-on from it might take a while to get over the line. Do you know what the options that we now actually have, according to, and again, this is according to the Irish Academy of Engineers, do you know what, we have three options to meet the shortfall, potential shortfall that we're facing. Now, remember that this all of what we've done is in the name of climate change and being good children when it comes to climate change, right? The options we have are burning oil distillate instead of gas, reopening the peat plants in the Midlands, and extending the lifespan of Money Point, which is a coal-fired plant, past its 2025. That's our menu of options. Isn't that fantastic? You mentioned, Michael, the, um, the IEA. The, uh, the Irish Academy of Engineering. And I'm not sure if this is the paper you were referencing, but I do have a paper saved from them that they brought out in May of this year. 
uh, about the energy crisis. And I thought I would give you two quotes from it, Michael, just to, to set the general tone. So this is in the introduction, and they're making the point about the reliability of the energy supply. Um, and they say, whether Ireland expands its wind generation by 5,000 megawatts or 25,000 megawatts over the next decade doesn't matter from the point of view of system adequacy. Under either scenario, there will be times in 2030 when wind generation, regardless of installed wind generation capacity, will meet less than 1% of instantaneous electric electricity demand, and there will be days when it meets less than 5% of demand over a period of 20 hours. Now, here's the second quote I wanted to give you, Michael. And this is the part of the, the last part of the introduction. This short paper from the IEA does not offer simplistic answers, as there aren't any. There you go. So, I, can you just read that again, the first part of that? Because I think what it said was, irrespective of the number or the quantity. So it, it doesn't it doesn't matter how much wind generation we have, because and they, they don't say that in that exact quote, but this is the reasoning for it. There are just going to be days where there's too little wind, there's too much wind, uh, and wind generation just isn't really a runner, which is the problem that we've been talking about. It's not the max capacity that's the issue, or the max output. Of, of these sort of generators, it's what can they do consistently and reliably and predictably. And I know that we have been we have been talking about this a lot, and probably there may be people out there in that small band, happy band of listeners that we have who are sick and tired of it. But right there, that one sentence is a thing that I think should be plastered because I really do believe that so many people think that if we planted the country with wind turbines, we just planted the country, if we planted the West Coast, million hectares of these things, well, that would be, we would solve the problem. Where that sentence tells us something simple. We could put in a million of these things and there still will be days when they will not produce one percent of our requirement for electricity. That is not to say I'm, and I am not suggesting from that. I have not position. We shouldn't have wind generation, or we shouldn't have expand wind generation. But we should do that in the understanding that it will not be sufficient as a baseline supplier of energy. We have to have parallel systems that we prove. We can bring online. We can't just close stuff down and say, well, we will have wind until the day comes. And, you know, Ben Wenger, that it should come soon, that we have solved the problem of the batteries where we can store the wind energy that we don't use at that moment when we're when the wind system is producing all sorts of mass, massive amounts of electricity, which isn't going into the grid because it's not needed at the time that it's being generated and it's surplus to requirement. And we can save that up and use it for other times. When we've solved the problem of storage, well, then that may be a different story. But we have not solved that problem. No, I mean, you, your point there on, on transition. If you transition from one fuel to the other, but you have no interim steps to allow that to happen, that's not a transition. That's a devastation of your energy grid. And that's what's happened. There has been a focus on the expansion of renewables to such a point that they have removed necessary infrastructure in the hope that new technology would allow them to just use renewable energy. And that has not happened, and now they find themselves at a point where the energy grids, and not just in Ireland, all across Europe, are increasingly fragile and are increasingly expensive. There is an element of this which feels like it, the, the policy was driven by a notion that we have to not, we have to just cut it off. We can't keep these old systems in place because if we do, we'll never fully go renewable. We have to get rid of them 
or else we'll become complacent. It's a little bit like someone saying, we're going to take, we're going, we're going to take those little training wheels off your bike and you're going to have to pedal because otherwise you'll just, you'll never learn how to ride a bike properly. But the problem with that is it's stupid that it's not, it's not a question that, well, well, we'll never go on. It's that we can't do it. It doesn't work. We're not there. But you see, Gary, is it possible that some part of an agenda or a philosophy or an ideological disposition here actually believes that the real problem is not energy generation, but rather the very nation, the very nature of late stage capitalism and the way we organize our society? There have always been people, particularly in the Green Party, who've been major proponents of either degrowth or depopulation. So are there people in the Green Party with that belief? Absolutely. Are there people in the other parties who are increasingly of that view, yes. But Michael, I would make this counterpoint to explain why I don't think that is the primary cause of these issues. And my counterpoint would be public transport. The Greens actually care about public transport, and they want people to stop and and transition to using public transport in greater numbers. And many of them are also very invested in it, and psychopaths, things like that. And I would ask the average person to spend a little time trying to use public transport in Ireland, and you will promptly realise how crap it is. So it's not just in energy. There's many things they say they care about, and they've been absolutely unable to formulate any way to actually get to the end point they say they want. So I suspect that this is not ideology. I suspect that this is a combination of gross incompetence and the fact that they were so eager to get it done that they didn't really think of how they would do it or what that meant. Now, Michael, you you and I have both talked to people in the energy field itself who didn't realise this problem was going to happen until it started happening. Yeah. And that is all, that was a terrifying moment. (laughs) saying it's it's not just inevitable that this would happen it was obvious that this would happen but look i i think we we've we've talked about energy i think endlessly um i was about to say so on to something new but salmon rushdie threats of violence against salmon rushdie are not new like that's pretty old school at this point salmon rushdie for those who don't know is an author he wrote a book called the satanic uh, the satanic verses and as a response to that he had a a fatwa uh, calling for his death put upon him by the uh, Ayatollah of Iran. The Ayatollah Khomeini at the time. Yeah. And since that point, um, I think there have been multiple attempts in his life. He's received an endless amount of threats. He is a... Uh, I think I saw an event he was speaking at years ago in mainland Europe. And the level of security was obscene. But then, of course, you have an event like uh, yesterday, I suppose, at this, uh, where Salman Rushdie was uh, at a, uh, a speaking event. And someone just rushed the stage and began to stab him. It's unclear what his current status is. At time of recording, what they're saying, although you know, I'm not sure how accurate this is, is that he is uh, in hospital, he's on a ventilator, he's lost the use of one arm, he can't speak. Uh, none of which is terribly good for an author. No, this, the last report said that he, he 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 had been stabbed several times in the liver. Um, he seems It seems to me that he's lost... An eye. Um, he is has stabilized. That his uh, condition seems to be stabilizing. It's better than it was, but he's still uh, very, very ill. And even if, and inshallah, he does recover, he will come out of this with very serious injuries for the rest of his life. I, I, I'm not terribly interested in talking about Rushdie himself, as awful as that might be to say at this point. What I'm particularly interested in about here is the, shall we say, ideological similarities between the sort of people who do something like this 
and the sorts of people who say things like speech is violence. Because if speech is violence, the appropriate response against it is violence. Of course, the other thing is, I, I, I just as it, in that, what inevitably occurs when we think of Salomon Rushdie, in this case, the attack that is taking place on him, is if we think back to the attacks that uh, that took place on Charlie Hebdo. And when we think of the issues are, and why Salomon Rushdie was protected and became this totemic figure was because it was about the very high value that the West, the Western world places on free speech and artistic expression and the right of artists to say what they want without fear or favor without set in the case of the united states censorship is almost unknown effectively because this the uh, protections of free speech are so strong in the in the constitution less so maybe in europe but still it is supposedly one of our absolutely key base values in the context of the laws that are being drawn up and drafted and talked about regarding uh, hate speech in ireland and not just in ireland i wonder and i'm not the only one right now wondering if charlie Hebdo would have got away with saying the kinds of things that historically Charlie Hebdo has said under the new dispensation. I suspect that there would have been a trial and they would have been found to have not breached the laws because it would have been found there was some artistic or journalistic merit in what they were saying, which is usually not always in hate speech laws, but is usually the proviso. And that would happen and people would say, look, our laws are very moderate and they ensure that you know people who say these things with purpose don't go to jail. And these are the sort of people who've never had to deal with the court system or understand that the process is actually the punishment. Yeah, you say that, Gary, but what about the proposals that we were looking at in Ireland? We had initially thought there were going to be strong protections for artistic expression, but our our impression, our initial impression was wrong. No, now it looks like there will be a strong, well, moderate protection for reporting on artistic expression, just not for the person expressing the artistic view. But I, on, the, on the matter of free speech, I think one of the problems we have is that free speech has become too close uh, linked to the idea of the American Constitution. Yeah. That the government shall not interfere in your speech. That is not, I mean, that is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Free speech is an actual philosophical or political position that says that there should be a space in society for the broadest array of views possible and that those spaces should be defended. Yes. But you should be willing to accept that people will say things you don't like because that is required for society to function. And increasingly, we've run to this more and more legalistic and minimalistic understanding of it, usually by people who would be perfectly happy for the government to crack down on speech if they could find some way to make sure it would only fall on their enemies. Concomitant with that narrowing understanding, we see in the same spaces this concept creep. Language has gone, uh, and speech has gone from being offensive to being a manifestation of actual violence. And the uh, where we can, people will legitimately say, "By you say that, that offends me, that hurts me, that traumatizes me, that you have actually damaged me." That, in a legal sense, that this is a tort, rather than saying to people, "Well, yeah, you got offended, but yeah, so what, suck it up." No, we are now increasingly indulging this notion, particularly with protected classes, that if somebody says something which they find to be offensive. Now, that's not, to be offensive is no longer sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. No, we are now going along the notion, which I don't believe has any basis in actual, uh, in psychology or therapeutic uh, uh, practice, that being offended is the same as being hurt because this is actual violence, not notional violence, but actual violence against me, and it actually damages me. And that concept creep is really dangerous. 
particularly when we narrow down our sense of what free speech is supposed to be. I mean, it's it's interesting on that point because the idea that speech could be violent, you actually find in a number of ancient societies, particularly the imperial or, or reputation-based societies. Yes. But they had a very different understanding of violence. They also have a different understanding of the rate of, of language and magic. And I'm not saying this flippantly, but it seems to me we are returning to a notion of magical language that we are imbuing words with power that historically was only seen in, in societies which had a strong belief in magic. What is magic? Mostly, in most, in most countries, certainly in the Western tradition, not just magic is principally done, sometimes with objects and artifacts, but principally with incantations, with stringing words together in a particular form and recited in a particular way. And that those words then have the, the capacity to act in the world and to, to act in the material world and in, in the immaterial world. And we are moving towards that notion of language. I, and I don't think that's excessive to say. I know it sounds weird and bizarre, but when I listen to people talk about the use of certain words, that they have imbued this these words with a power which I can only describe as, ma- as magic. The point I would like to make here, Michael, is that it might seem odd that we're talking about this in reaction to Salman Rushdie uh, being stabbed, although I, I assume long-time listeners fully expected this to happen. But I would make the point that the sort of people who are violently opposed to other people being able to express their free speech are ideologically bedfellows with a sort of person who might stab an author because he said something offensive. I mean, the degree differs, the extremism differs, the willingness to hurt can differ, although actually seeing some of the progressives when they get uh, into their mob phases probably not differ that much. But there is a striking similarity there. It's just a question of how far you're willing to go and well, how sure you'll be you can do it without punishment. Yeah. It's always, it always amuses me because the sort of people who tend to be very fond of this are also very fond of quoting things about the need to be intolerant to intolerance because if you're not intolerant to intolerance then tolerance will die because every time they I hear them talk about it Michael when they're saying why they should stop someone else from talking all I can think is that of the people in this conversation who might meet that definition you are way up there someone who's going to decide on their own that they can use force or social pressure to stop another person speaking on the assumption that that person might might later do something wrong. That's kind of in prime position to be intolerant about. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a it's a weird betrayal of the liberal tradition. I mean, if you go back to, I, I think it was Rousseau who said that in a civic society, in civil society, we have to, when engaging with people who disagree with us, work on ourselves in this way that we shall not ascribe to the person who disagrees. We shall not say he is mad. We shall not say he is stupid. We shall not say he is bad because they're the three lazy things that we tend to, well this is not left or right this is the, this is what human beings do he's mad he's bad he's stupid but re- we must put those aside and engage in an act of intellectual generosity and openness to what the other person is saying we must always leave ourselves open to the possibility the other person has something to teach us that we may indeed be wrong Gary how many times have you heard or had conversations with people who would consider themselves very much in the liberal tradition or moderate left or whatever who have said that over the years they have become increasingly uncomfortable with say the progressive agenda and have come from a position where they didn't have they didn't really have relationships with many conservatives at all and have now been forced to because of the positions they have adopted on say stuff like say free speech or artistic freedom been moved they've been forced to move into other spaces and have been amazed to discover that the place where they are most likely to actually have a reasonable interaction with people who disagree with are to go
go to conferences where people will disagree with each other all the time and have debates, but won't actually have rancor and will sit down and have dinner afterwards and talk about, have been to their amazement conservative spaces. Because the progressive left has become so intolerant of any deviation from the dogma that the heretic gets his head cut off so quickly. And there is in this system, this new post-religious religion, there is no role for redemption. There is no way, there is no confession. There is no way of being purged of your sin, really. You can go through the struggle sessions and you confess, but increasingly that's not going to, that's not cutting it anymore. There's a real abandonment of, a, of a, an old-fashioned liberal enlightenment tradition of honest disagreement. No, I mean, I would know many people in academia, both personally and because the EBI will work with academics, and across a broad range of spectrum, because we're willing to work with and deal with people who agree with us on one topic, disagree with us on everything else. But when they talk about their work environment and the way it's become and how their colleagues are, it sounds intellectually suffocating and stifling. It does not sound like anything that will go to a good place. But Michael, I just want to touch again on that point I said about people who are calling for restrictions on speech being in the same ideological bedfellows of a man who would try and murder an author. Because I, I understand that that is a bit of a provocative thing to say. And so I would just say that long-time listeners of the show will know that while I will joke and insult, I generally dislike the use of extreme language to describe opponents because I just don't think it's, it's correct or fair. In this case, no, I absolutely mean it. And I think it is the way it should be phrased because I think a lot of very lovely, very respectable people have found themselves taking positions, particularly on free speech, that they do not understand the implications of, and they do not understand what the consequences would be if those policies were adopted in full. They would be corrosive to democracy, they would be harmful to people, and they are nothing good. And those people are not going to be reasoned out of that position because they weren't reasoned into it. There was social movement, and they ended up there. So, you may need to shock them out of it, because the idea that they could be similar to someone who could do something like this to those respectable people would be offensive in the extreme but it's also accurate indeed and uh, there is a ridiculous confidence in their that they're going to be able to do these things they're going to be able to wield this power of censorship and of control in such a precise way that no innocent person is going to suffer and they will do it and it will just lead to the betterment of mankind I, uh, anyway actually Michael here's, here's one you might find interesting I, I was talking to someone there and they asked me they're saying that I had done a lot of work looking at NGOs in Ireland. And what did I think was the most destructive NGO in the country? Just the, the worst. And I have to say, by a country mile, it's the Irish Council for Civil Liberties for this very simple reason. They are not the largest. They're not the most influential. They're not the most extreme waste of public money. They mostly waste private money from foreign donors. But what they are is a group that the government and other NGOs can bring in to rubber stamp other policies that would be deep deeply deeply harmful to civil liberties and enables other NGOs in the government to say, but of course there's no issue with something like this because, I mean, even the Irish Council for Civil Liberties have said that this is a perfectly legitimate step and it legitimises policy positions which are horrendous. And because the ICCL is there, no one else can take that position. It is filled with people who are not fit for the job. So I legitimately think they are deeply harmful to the country. Well, it's absolutely predictable Gary, in this new progressive of dispensation. Once upon a time, if you wanted to publish a book as a Catholic or a Catholic theologian that was going to be used in a Catholic university, Catholic schools, or to be read by the faith, you would get what they call the imprimatur and the nihil obstat. You get an obstat from the bishop, the imprimatur from the church, saying this contains sound doctrine. So that would be printed, and 
so you could say, okay, it's okay. This book, we can safely read this book. We will not, our souls will not be put in the risk of perdition. You can give this to children. It's okay. The same way now, the government can produce some kind of hate speech legislation or any kind of legislation. And the ICE, the, the, uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties will come along and it will give its imprimatur to that legislation. And the government can perfectly well say, well, you know, obviously, if this were a threat to people's civil liberties, it wouldn't have got the approval of the ICLU, would it? So all these people saying this is a problem for civil liberties are obviously just crazy right-wing wingnuts, far-right adjacent type, because the Irish civil, Irish civil Liberties Union has said it's okay. So it must be okay. It's using that moral shadow that it can cast in order to give credence to the notion that none of these things represent a threat to people's civil liberties. And that is gross, grossly dangerous. And it also puts other organisations in a weird position. Like Michael, you and I had a conversation recently about whether the Edmund Burke Institute should write to TDs about the coming exclusion zones around GPs and say they were a threat to free speech. The Edinburgh Institute, despite my own personal views, is not a pro-life organisation. It is a free market charity. But we have taken the view that free markets rely on a set of other values, including free speech, in order to function properly. Which is not really surprising. I think the argument that markets alone are what determine um, free markets and capitalism is an incredibly myopic view. But I don't want, because obviously there is the, the abortion angle, us to have to put in something like that to make the very valid arguments against it about the danger that they have. I mean, fundamentally, this is a law which says the government can restrict political debate and discussion within a 100 metres of any location it chooses, and it is free to choose what type of political debate is stifled. That is, that is in no way compatible with any understanding of free speech. The point you make about the relationship between the free speech, for example, and the mark is actually a really important one. I mean, I'm reminded there's a quote uh, by the great American political philosopher, sociologist Daniel Moynihan. I, I would say a man of the, the moderate left, he, although he was an advisor to Nixon, but he, he was a, a Democrat senator and a Democrat all his life. He was a, a friend and advisor and colleague of John F. Kennedy's and so on. Anyway, he, there's a quote he's, he, he's talking about in a book, The American Experience. He, he famously says, secrecy is for losers, for people who do not know how important information really is. This is the kicker. The Soviet Union really realized this too late. Openness is now a singular and singularly American advantage. And he means there actually is in the economic sense, amongst other senses, but certainly in the economic sense, openness, free exchange of ideas, the free movement of ideas, and the possibility of telling the truth without consequences is really important for a successful economy. One of the reasons why, I'm not getting into the issue of the rights and wrongs of it, but one of the reasons why we've seen the Russian army do rather badly in the Ukraine, we are now seeing is because Russia is a totalitarian state and there isn't a free movement of information and truth. There is no openness, which means you get levels, terrific levels of, of corruption and market failure within that system because nobody's telling the truth to anybody. And one of the reasons they're not telling the truth is because you're not allowed. The truth as a value disappears. I remember talking to a Romanian who said that one of the worst things that happens under a dictatorship like Ceausescu's is the fact that people stop telling the truth because the truth stops being an advantage and becomes a dangerous thing to do. So from the point of, of an open economy, the word open is really important there, that for an economy to be successful, successful for for goods for entrepreneurs to to exist for innovation to happen there has to be 
an open movement of information and people have to be able to tell the truth to each other about lots and lots of things and we're not in a position gary that's the thing about a complexity of our society we're not in a position to pick and choose what we can be open about or what we can tell the truth about because we don't know what's going to be important for society we don't know what's going to be the thing that actually screws us up in the end so you just as a principle you have to say no there may be costs to it there may it, it may cause problems in other areas but it is a fundamental part of the way we are in our society for our society to be successful is that we allow people to speak freely and not just allow them we encourage it we encourage people to speak freely and openly and tell their truth and if their truth is something that we find about then they tell it out in the open they say it out loud and we engage with them and we show that the ideas are bad. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's why the Edinburgh Institute was happy to engage with the government and the departments about the passage of the hate speech bill. Yeah. And we'll probably do more on that and on, on uh, why it is a terrible idea. <laughs> Issues like this, particularly because there's the abortion angle, the EBI to the greatest extent possible stays out of social issues. And that's partially because our remit is to talk about market solutions and partially because it's just damaging to have to do it when it's not your remit. You just piss people off who you might need to work with. But the ICCL won't do it. So it creates this weird distortionary effect where you have to go, okay, well, if they're not going to do it and it's important, we should do it. But then we will suffer. There will be negative consequences if we do this, even if it's just having to explain in detail to some very nice officials exactly how this falls inside your charitable purpose. But more likely, it will damage relationship with some of the people we talk to. And you, know, you can accept that, but it's not a decision we should ever have to make. And my my issue here is not that I, I think that the ICL has chosen the wrong policy I th in supporting things like exclusion zone and hate speech laws. My position is that they have chosen policies I do not believe are compatible with their status as the protector of civil liberties, even self-appointed as it is. I think they have abdicated all responsibility in the area, and because they're there, they can just make these things more palatable for politicians, and it frankly disgusts me. Hey ho, it's not going to change today or tomorrow. No, it's absolutely not going to change. It will never change. And what's more, Michael, none of the people involved care. I mean, we've had, like... I don't even want to get into it, but suffice it to say, they don't care because they know nothing can be done to them. Yeah. Um, can I throw in a notion here again, as I like to, that, that it may not be that these pe people are operating in an ideology, in, in an ideology-free zone either. What I mean is that the way that they conceive of free speech, or at least so many individuals maybe, some of them may be operating within an absolutely old-fashioned John Milton, John Locke, um, John Stuart Mill. They're all called John. John Stuart Mill understanding of free speech. But I, they may be. But I'm sure some of them are operating under that new understanding of the nature of free speech, which, which we found in Herbert Marcuse, who believes that free speech, as we understood it historically, is actually an illusion. And free speech is, has, is really only defended by bourgeois liberals as a way of maintaining their own power in society and that real real free speech should only be given to those people who are actually the alienated and the express the oppressed and the exploited members of the capitalistic patriarchal society so that we shouldn't give free speech to the likes of you and me who are defenders of the bourgeois the bourgeois uh, capitalistic exploiting machine but rather only those protected classes should be given 
free speech and that's real free speech so they don't actually really believe in free speech as we under as we understand it at all do you know what always strikes me as amusing in this discussion michael when we're talking about not just the iccl but the aclu and groups like that i mean the aclu famously supported the rights of neo-nazis to march things like that they would not do that anymore the march through Skokie, yeah but what i find deeply amusing is that in a previous era where racism and isms of all type were far more prevalent, where there was violence, there was street violence, there was street harassment. There were things that would be simply unthinkable in the modern world. It was not necessary to give up these rights. And now it is. Even though, when you look at it, when you look at the world, there is undoubtedly less racial violence, animosity, harassment, and things of that nature. So as the world has gotten better, and as those issues have become closer to being solved, it has been decided that there can be no there could be no restrictions on what must be done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, the the appearance of progress is an illusion, and it is only through the Revolutionary Act that we can strip away that illusion. So I think we will we will leave it there, Michael, for this Sunday. We should be back next Sunday. Uh, my week long hike is not happening for. Most of a month, which is uh, fantastic. It's a month to look forward to it. Yeah, apparently this this sort of thing takes at least three months to train for. So uh, hoping I can cut some corners. But until then, have a good week and enjoy what left is left of the good weather. All the best.